This week I, uh, I read a story of a little boy named Johnny. And Johnny is a five-year-old bright little kid, and he asked his dad, a 35-year-old bright big kid, saying, Dad, I really want a baby brother. And so his dad said to him, he said, Johnny, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take two months, and during that two months, pray to God for a baby brother. And I guarantee you, at the end of that two months, you will have a baby brother. And so Johnny was so excited, he went right back to his room, he started to pray for a baby brother. And he prayed day after day after day. But as the weeks moved on, after about a month, he finally decided, you know what, I'm not going to pray anymore. He got discouraged because he thought, you know, I've never heard of anyone praying for two months and then obligating God to give them something. So I'm just going to give up praying. Plus, nothing's really happening right now, and so I'm just going to give up. Well, about a month later, his mom comes home from the hospital, and she's lying in the room, and her his parents call Johnny in. And Johnny comes into the room, and as as the dad pulls back the sheet, sure enough, a baby brother. Not just one, but two. There were twins. And so Johnny is so excited. He has two baby brothers. And his dad turns to him and says, Johnny, aren't you so glad that you prayed? And Johnny hesitantly looked at his dad and he said, Yes, but uh, aren't you glad I stopped when I did? (laughs) You know, I think that for us, prayer is so much like it is for Johnny. Uh, we we get really excited about something, almost like prayer is only in the case of emergencies. And we and we pray and we pray and we pray, and then we get discouraged and we lose heart and we stop praying for various reasons. Maybe it's because we have prayed before and God's answer to that prayer was no, and we thought, what is the purpose of praying if if I'm not going to get what I want? Maybe maybe you've given up on prayer because you do these theological chess game in your head of saying, if God's completely in control, if God's will will be done, then why would I possibly pray, right? All these are very good questions, but neither of these questions ever kept Jesus or Paul from fervently praying to the Father. And so today we're going to look and see why Paul prays so earnestly to God. If you would open up to Ephesians chapter 3, we are actually going to spend three weeks in this passage of verse 14 through 21, and it is a a prayer of Paul. And so the next three weeks, we're going to have this sub-series about prayer within this big series of Ephesians, and we're going to take a look at Paul's prayer And because it is the word of God, there is much for us to learn. And so what we'll see this week is we'll see the foundation of Paul's prayer, kind of his lead up to prayer, why he prays. Next week, we'll see the content of Paul's prayer, what Paul is praying for. And then the final week, we will see the goal of Paul's prayer. Why does he pray the way that he does? And my hope is that during these three weeks, God would stir our affections for him and he would stir our affections for prayer and we would know the privilege that prayer is and that we would make use of it often and frequently, same thing, that we would 
pursue God in prayer constantly as we are called to in the scriptures. And so we want to be reminded of the privilege of prayer. So let's read here Ephesians chapter 3. And uh, we're actually going to read 14 through 21, but we're only going to focus on 14 through 16 today. So let's read Ephesians chapter 3, 14 through 21. For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. God, as we turn our attentions to this topic of prayer over the next three weeks, I think many of us, like me, would confess that we are not as much of a praying people as we should be, Lord. That prayer often takes a back seat in our lives. That it is not a priority. That often to us it seems like a hindrance. And so, God, we pray that you would free us from these misconceptions, free us from these misunderstandings of prayer, that we would become a people of prayer, fully relying upon you daily, talking to you because of the privilege that it is. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So today we're going to look at the foundation of Paul's prayer. We're not actually going to get to his prayer, but his lead up to the prayer. And what we're going to see, what Paul's going to talk about is his reason for prayer, uh, his posture in prayer, his our identity in prayer, and then God's capability in prayer. And so those are the things that we're going to look at this morning. So let's first start by looking at the reason for prayer. Before Paul prays, he starts off this passage saying, for this reason. For this reason, he's going to pray. And so the natural question for us should be, what is the reason? What is the reason that Paul is going to launch into prayer? And the reason that Paul is going to move into prayer is because of everything that he has covered in the first two and a half chapters of this book, of the first half of his letter to the Ephesians. And so let's briefly take time to look back over to remind ourselves of what Paul shared with us in the first two and a half chapters of Ephesians. If you remember, the first half, Paul explodes into praise because of the work of the Trinitarian God to save us. And then he moves on to pray for the Ephesians, pray that they would know God, know his power, know his hope, know his inheritance. As we move into Ephesians chapter 2, Paul gives us an honest assessment of our spiritual condition. He says, because of our sin, all of us were born dead spiritually to God. That we were uh, justly deserving the wrath of God. But because of God's grace, because of Jesus Christ, we have been saved through grace. 
And then he goes on to tell us, if you remember, that we are not saved by our good works, but we are saved onto good works for the glory of God. The second half of chapter 2, Paul talks about how the Gentiles were once far off, but God has brought down the dividing wall of hostility that Jews and Gentiles, these groups of people who hated each other, were brought together into one group, into one family, into one church for the glory of God. And then last week we looked at the the first half of chapter 3 and we saw that Paul is rejoicing that he has been made a steward of the mystery of Christ, that the salvation promised in the Old Testament had been revealed through Jesus at the cross, and we get to steward that gospel to those around us. And so Paul says, for these reasons, for the reason that God is big, for the reason that God is in charge, for the reason that God saves, that God loves, that God delivers us, for that reason, because God is big, I pray to him. You know, yesterday, Trish and I took the kids down to the YMCA and uh, Corbin and Caleb can swim on their own. Caleb needs a noodle, but Corbin can go on his own. Cooper sat on the side sleeping. Uh, Carissa, Carissa was on a large floaty mat and she was just floating around the pool. But every once in a while, Carissa would want to get down off of the mat. And so when she did, she would jump to mom or jump to dad and she would hold on for dear life. Because she knew that her mom and dad were bigger than her. She knew that mom and dad could stand in the deep water and hold her up. She didn't jump to Carissa. Uh, she didn't jump to Cooper. She didn't jump to Caleb. She didn't jump to Corbin. They weren't big enough. She jumped to mom and dad. And what Paul is saying here is that we go to dad in prayer because he is big. He can stand in the deep waters of life. He is stable. He is sturdy. He is the one that we go to. And so that is part of our foundation for prayer, knowing that God is big. Paul continues on and he shares with us that the reason for prayer is not only um, that one of the foundations for prayer is because God is big, but he also goes on to talk about his posture in prayer. Um, He says in verse 14, for this reason, I bow my knees before the father. And so the question is, why does Paul put this in here? I mean, why does Paul need to tell us how he's praying? Is there only one posture that's right for praying? Is is being on your knees more effective? Does does the lifeline to God get bigger if you're on your knees? (laughs) Well, we see throughout scripture, there are many wonderful, valid ways to pray. We see people on their knees. We see people standing. We see people face down on the ground. And so our physical body posture is not all that important. But what is important is our heart posture. What position is our heart in when we are praying to God? And sometimes our bodily posture represents that. Jesus shares a story, a parable in Luke 18, talking about this very thing. In Luke 18, verse 10 through 14, he says this. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. And so you see this proud, arrogant man standing in front of the church, 
saying, God, thank you, I am me. Thank you, I am awesome. God, you are so lucky to have me. And his heart is arrogant. And his posture is standing. Now, what's ironic is God is going to praise the tax collector, but he too is standing. But look at his heart attitude. Verse 13. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And so what is God saying here? He's saying, when you go to God in prayer, go humbly. No, like this tax collector, that God is big, that God is holy, that God is righteous, and that you, you're small, you're sinful, you're desperate for his mercy and his grace. There's a story I love about these three preachers that are standing around talking about what is the best posture for praying. And while they're sitting around discussing this, there's actually a telephone repairman fixing a phone wire in the room. And so one preacher says, you know, the best posture for prayer is on my knees. I just know that that is the most effective way to pray to God. The other one says, no, 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 no. The best way to pray is to stand up, arms lifted high to heaven. That is the most effective, most meaningful prayer. The third one says, no, no, no. The best way to pray is with your face down upon the ground. That is the best posture for prayer. And then the telephone repair man can no longer stand himself, and he decides to chime in. He says, I don't mean any disrespect to you men, but the best prayer position I've ever been in was hanging from a telephone pole. (laughs) What the preachers were talking about was a physical posture of prayer before God. What the phone repair man was talking about, his heart posture. Desperation, right? I'm hanging up here. God, help me. You know, it's so amazing how God will put things in your life to remind you that you are not in control. God will put things in your life to remind you that you do not have all the power. God will put telephone poles in your life. God will put times in your life when you stand next to a mountain and you say, I am not all that big. I'm significant. I'm, 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 I'm deserving of dignity because I'm made in the image of God. But I'm not all that big. I'm not all that powerful. When we look at things like earthquakes and tsunamis and nuclear reactors, we're reminded that we are limited in our power. But that God is powerful. That God is big. As we look around, as we see loved ones struggling with cancer, people dying, we are reminded that our power is very limited, that we are small, loved by God, but that we are small, but he is big. And so when you take these two thoughts together, that Paul goes to God who is big, recognizing that he is small, that he comes with humility, we see two possible reasons why you and I may not see prayer as important as we might. The first is this. One reason why, if you struggle with prayer, you may not pray is because God is small to you. You may say, no, 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 no. I know that God is big. I know that God created the universe. 
but your heart and your prayer life would reveal that God is very small to you. The other thing that would show us that your view of yourself is very big, right? If you can do everything, if you are in power, if you are in control, then there's no need to pray to God. And so that's one reason why we may not pray to God either. And so how would we reconcile this? How would we possibly grow to understand that God is big and that we are small? Because if you're like me, I read this and I'm repentant saying, Lord, why do I not spend more time in prayer? There are certainly certain days where I'm not a man of prayer. And it's when I make myself big, when I have my agenda, when I want to be productive, right? I want to pray. It's not productive. I want to be productive today. And I make God small and I make me big. How do we change that? How do we make God big and me small? Well, I think Paul sets out a very good example for us here. First off, get this. We pray about it. (laughs) We pray, God, confessing, Lord, forgive me. God, I have made myself big. I have made myself important. I have made myself all-powerful, and I have shrunk you. Forgive me. Change that in my heart, Lord God. This is actually what Paul is kind of praying at the end of Ephesians 1 and and the content of his prayer coming up, that God would make himself big and us small. You may remember John the Baptist, and I'm trying to think of the exact words, but when Christ came and his disciples said Jesus is, is baptizing people, John says, He must become greater and I must become lesser. It's the goal of the Christian that Christ would become greater and that we would become lesser. And so one way to counteract our arrogance is pray. But the second is to remember the gospel. You might remember that Paul is writing this letter to Christians. He's writing it to the Christians in Ephesus. And what Paul spends the first half of the book doing is reminding them of Um, And so Paul is reminding them of the gospel of the Jesus Christ in the first chapter and a half of the first two and a half chapters of Ephesians. And what he does is he lays out a reminder that we are sinners, that we are desperately in need of God's grace, that we are small, that we cannot merit God's love or merit God's favor, but that God, by his grace, loved us and pursued us and sent Jesus Christ to the cross to die for us. And it's because God is big that he can come and save people like us. And so God reminds us of the gospel through Paul that we might become smaller and that God might become bigger in our lives. So we see here Paul's purpose in prayer, also his posture in prayer. We also see something very important to the foundation of prayer, which is our identity in prayer. Uh, A year or so ago, I drove over to um, Wellington, Ohio for my grandpa's funeral. And when I drove over to Wellington, Ohio, uh, all my dad's relatives were there. Well, a lot of them were there, a lot of them who I don't know very well. And, and you've probably had this happen to you, but as I went around and I shook people's hands of people I was somewhat unfamiliar with, I, I got this common theme. Oh, you're, you're Rick's son, right? Yeah. Oh, nice to meet you. It's good to... They didn't even care what my name was. <laughs> I'm Rick's son. That's my name, right? I'm Rick's son. 
If, if my wife went to Ettrick, Wisconsin, where her dad's from, they'd say, you're John's daughter, right? Yeah, that, that's right. Uh, you know, there are people who have actually come to Jake as well because at their church, nobody knows their name. They're just son of so-and-so or daughter of so-and-so. And so what we're going to see here is Paul says your identity as a father, or your identity as a child of God is extremely important to the foundation of your prayer life. Look with me in verse 14. Paul says this. He says, for this reason, I bow my knee before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, that term every there uh, actually has a couple different meanings. The word in Greek is pasa. I don't try to give many Greek uh, lectures, but sometimes we have to. And uh, and it can either mean every or it can mean whole. And so the NIV translates it this way, and I think it's actually much better. And it's actually very critical for us understanding it. Uh, in the NIV, Ephesians 3, 14 and 15 goes this way. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Now, the reason why I think that this means the whole family of God and not every family is because the whole letter that Paul has written, both before this passage and after this passage, Paul is arguing that we are one in Christ, that we are one church, that we are one family. And so it flows right in line with his argument. And so Paul says the fact that we as one whole family, as the church of God, as those who trust in Jesus Christ, bear his name, that he is our father, is extremely important to our prayer life. You see, when my kids come to me and they say, hey, dad, can we play football? Yes, I would love to. Because they're my kids. I'm their dad. I'm their father. When they come to me and they say, hey, dad, can I eat a whole bag of candy? No. Why not? Because I'm their father. I'm their dad. I love them. You see, sometimes a father's loving answer is yes, and sometimes it's no, and sometimes it's later. But if God is our father, then it transforms how we would pray to God. Uh, Jesus actually talks about this in Matthew 7, verse 9 through 11. He says this in talking about prayer. He says, or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give you things to those who ask him? And so what what Jesus is saying here is, listen, your hearts are wicked and you love your children well. God's heart is pure and it's holy and it's filled with love. And so when you go to him and when you say, Dad, his answer is always love in Christ. In our community group, Tim Maylander always starts his prayer, Hey, Dad, what a great way to start prayer. Hey, Dad, continuing the conversation with our heavenly Father, knowing that he loves us, that he cares for us, that he is for us. And the reason why this is so comforting is because when we go to God and when we pray and when the answer is no, we know it isn't because God doesn't love us. We know it isn't because God is some distant dictator who is uninvolved in our life, but we know it's because he is an involved, loving father who says, no, this is not good for you. This is not good for my kingdom. This is not good for for my glory. And so we can pray confidently knowing that a loving father will do what is best. We can go to dad. We can say to dad, please 
can I have this? Dad, thank you for this. Dad, what a beautiful day. Dad, thank you that you have given me my family. Dad, thank you that you have given me this job. We can go to Dad. He is our Father, and it is a foundation for us going to Dad in prayer. Finally, we see uh, Paul points out God's capabilities in prayer. In verse 16, he says, uh, according to the riches of his glory. What does this mean? Paul prays, and according to the riches of God's glory. Very simply, what this means is that God has an abundance of riches, that it is overflowing, that he has storehouses that are unfathomable and inexhaustible of grace and mercy and love towards you. There is nothing in the entire world that God cannot give you through prayer. There is absolutely nothing. When, uh, when people ask Trish and I, what's your favorite place to eat? A lot of times our answer is wherever we have a coupon to, right? Maybe that's some of you. Wherever I have a coupon, that's my favorite place to eat. If I get a deal, that's good. Trish and I love saving money. We'll go to like garage sales, Craigslist. Uh, if you came over to my house and we were friends, I'd probably play this little game with you of, hey, you see this cool TV? Guess how much I paid for it. And then we'd play this game and I'd make you guess it. And then you'd say like $1 and I'd be mad. But if you say $2,000, I'd be like, thank you, yes. It was only one fifty. So, But the reason why we go and we, we, we cut corners and we try to save money is because Trish and I are on a budget. Uh, by no means are we poor. We have plenty of money. Uh, Jacob's well pays us well. But we're on a budget, right? Hopefully you are on a budget. Uh, if you're not on a budget, that gets you in trouble, right? Credit card debt and things like that. But I'm on a budget. Trish is on a budget. We're all on budgets. God is not on a budget. God's riches are inexhaustible. And so if you ask God for something, and he says, no, it is not because he is not ample to do it. It's not because he doesn't have the supplies to do it. God can give you anything and everything that you want. I remember when I was in Columbia, Missouri, uh, one of my good friends, uh, she was, uh, I was, I was in college and she was in her forties and she used to tell me that she would pray for money all the time. She'd pray, God, make me rich. And she'd say, I'd be such a good, rich person. God, just give me money. I'd be such a good, rich person. But because God loves her, God said, no. God knows better. I am convinced that God would give me more money, um, that God doesn't give me more money because I can't handle it. I can't handle more money. And so what this means is we can pray for whatever we want, knowing that God can give it. You can pray for little things like safe travel. You can pray for money. You can pray for your car. You can pray for whatever. But you can also pray for big things. I hope that you pray for impossible things. I hope you pray that your stubborn uh, family member who will not place their trust in Christ, that God would break their heart, that they would come to faith in him. I pray that you would pray the impossible prayer, that God would reconcile marriages, that would glorify him. Because God has all the supplies of heaven. His riches are boundless. And so we can go to him and ask him for anything. And so pray big to God. You know, the images are probably still in your head of Japan and the earthquakes that have taken place there. And hopefully we have been in prayer about it. But um, 
But one of the amazing things about the earthquake there is that it seemed like very few of the buildings in the city actually collapsed. Uh, it's amazing because you see the images of them swaying back and forth, trees going back and forth, and very few of the buildings actually fell in the major cities like Tokyo. And it's because they're built for earthquakes, right? And one of the most important things of those buildings is the foundation. The foundation is extremely important to upholding that building. Today, Paul lays out a foundation for prayer. A foundation with beliefs that if we understood these, if these were actually true to us, if we believed that they were true, no matter what would come, we would be established in prayer. He lays the foundation for us that God is big, that I am small, that I am in need of a big God. He lays the foundation that God is my dad who loves me and wants good for me. And God lays, and Paul lays the foundation that God has an abundance of riches that he can answer any prayer that we ask, but that he will answer according to his love. And so what will it look like this week? (laughs) Will this foundation spur you on to pray? Will this foundation encourage you to pray to the Heavenly Father who loves you and cares for you? You know, we have relationships with people in our life. And the way that those relationships get distant and fractured is when we don't talk to them. God is saying, talk to me, not because I need you, but because you need me and I love you. Pray without ceasing. Let's pray. God, we do confess that prayer is often difficult in the busyness of life. Lord, pray that you would remind us of the foundations of prayer. Remind us that we can come to you as dad. Remind us that we are small, but that you are big, that constantly we need to be running to you and that you have the abundance of heaven to pour out for us according to your glory. Lord, we love you and we are so thankful that we can come to you in prayer, that Christ died, that we could have a relationship and talk to you. Thank you that you do answer prayers, either yes, no, or later, but you always answer them according to your love. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.